Dua Lipa sparks a conversation about internalized misogyny, Billie Eilish reveals a new hairstyle, and Teen Vogue removes new editor-in-chief over anti-Asian comments. We're Jasmine and Maggie, and you're listening to Culture Club, our weekly chat about pop culture, current affairs, the internet, and our lives. We acknowledge that the Wurundjeri and Bunwurrung people are the traditional custodians of the land upon which we live, work, and record this podcast. We would like to pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Let's just chat, Jazz, because it has been a while since we've been sitting in our respective like bedrooms or studies recording this. Um, last week, we, of course, had our Melbourne Fashion Festival live show, which was so much fun. Thank you to the friends who came down and, you know, Culture Club listeners. I think there were a few of you there, which was so nice to see. Um, we had heaps of fun. It was pretty nerve wracking, mm-hmm. though, if you can't tell in, um, last week's episode yeah it's been so long since we've recorded it's so weird um I'm so comfortable back in our bedroom I like it I like it not in front of a stage anymore (laughs) in like hug boots and a jumper rather than yeah heels but yeah it was such a great Mm -hmm. opportunity to have that platform like literally a platform on a stage Mm -hmm. yeah on our soapbox um so we hope that whoever listened enjoyed it and you learned something and it wasn't too ranty. And speaking of stages, of course, the Grammys were on last week. Um, did you catch any of it? Of course, we got to talk about the fashion as well. Yes, I came home and I caught the part where Taylor Swift won um, for amazing. Best Album. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was amazing. It was interesting that it was physical. I didn't expect that. I thought it was going to be all dis- like yeah. it was distance, but I thought it would be digital. So I think they only had the like nominees in the room, not any one else like no bonuses so we only got like a handful of celebrity style but I mean that Harry Styles performance and mm-hmm. outfits is enough to keep us going for a few months <laughs> so I totally want to know Harry Lambert his stylist his um reasoning for the feather boas I love them but so random don't you think so out of the woodwork you would not have picked that as a 2021 spring summer accessory <laughs> Yeah, but also I don't think it's surprising for Harry Styles. Mm-hmm. I think it – do you reckon it also pays homage to the fact that he wore a scarf Ashley at Tisdale? his audition? Oh, oh and Ashley oh, maybe. Tisdale. Ashley Tisdale has always been the prototype. <laughs> maybe. That's actually a cute reference and possibly – I didn't even remember that he wore a scarf. So, of course, you're the better fan here. <laughs> this is going to be a new era. Everyone's saying that Fine Line is over and is it going to be like a more rock album? He was wearing like all leather. Mm. People were saying he's very inspired by Freddie Mercury from Queen. So he's going to mm-hmm. take on that more like that direction. It'll be exciting to see. And we've spoken about this before, but those pictures of him with Lizzo, like hugging backstage, mm-hmm. So cute. Many memes were made. And I saw a TikTok again about the comparison of, Mm. um, you know, if he had been taken a picture like that, like snuggling up to a white slim celebrity, would there be more dating Mm -hmm. rumors? If it was with Olivia Wilde, would it be like confirmation that they're actually together? So we've spoken about that a few episodes ago, but that was more content that came out of it. What else? That's so true. I didn't even think about that. I didn't even, it didn't even clock with me because I'm like, oh, cute besties. Mm. Um, so I'm always glad to be pulled up on that, being like, hang on, why do I think like this? Um, 
Okay, no, sorry. All I want to talk about is Dua Lipa. So what, when, so when this episode is live, I would have, we would have posted a collage of her on Culture Club. I was like obsessed, like on my laptop yesterday, just cutting out images of her and like pasting it all together. Homage to the queen. Like jazz. I like literally am starstruck. Oh my God. That performance, <laughs> that performance. I know. We're getting giggly. Well, there's been, I saw some tweets that were saying like bullying Dua Lipa into performing well is one of the best things we ever did because I don't know if you remember, but a few no. years ago she was performing and people were like, yes, queen, give us nothing because her dancing <laughs> just like wasn't up to scratch to people's standards, I guess. So she came out and she killed it. And um, yeah, people on the internet have been praising her. A lot of people saying it was a tough night for their sexuality and I agree. Yes. She looked mm-hmm. stunning. So, yeah, go, girl. Yeah, it was too much to say the least. <laughs> I'm, like, still still thinking about it. I also love how much she embraced, like, pink and femininity. So she was wearing – she had, like, three or four outfit changes and they all featured pink, bedazzled. I think a lot of them were hand – like, hand-jeweled as well. She had a behind-the-scenes video – of people making her blazer and it was so intricate, so beautiful. But I do like how um, I guess that star can sometimes be like, oh, that's too feminine or that's kind of girlish or childish, Mm. but she just kind of embraced it all and looked amazing. Well, it's 2021 and we know that femininity doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to only be perceived one way because you're dressing more feminine. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of my biggest pet peeves. Like I love pink so much and I always, it always annoyed me when people would think like, oh, I can't wear pink or I hate glitter. Like to each their own, of course, you don't have to like Mm -hmm. those things, but don't like make me feel bad for like expressing my femininity or my creativity or whatever through my outfits Mm. through like dresses and skirts and stuff like just because you wear those things doesn't mean that you're not smart this is going a different direction but with the rise of like bimboism 2.0 that's a new thing as well of like just because you dress pink and glittery doesn't mean that you don't have something to say with this bimboism that you're talking about um are you talking about like reality tv stars and the way we view them or more so um, I know on TikTok there's been a rise of bimbo. So they're playing into the character of the like Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie of like the early 2000s where it's like mm. very airhead. They just act like they're hot and they are hot. And I don't know, I haven't like researched as well enough to really talk about it. But now they're like still walking around like dressed really like bimbo-y, which is, mm-hmm. isn't seen as a negative thing anymore is what I'm trying to say on yeah. the internet. It's mm. seen as like just a way of being and just because you're dressing that way, they're still kind of like politically aware. Yeah. They're like aware of their femininity and they're using it in a different way. Yes. And I so agree. I feel like that's kind of sad that we're still having these conversations because I battled with my own internalized misogyny. Still am, of course, but in primary school would never touch pink dresses, skirts. And of course, over the past few years, I've totally embraced that. And it's sad that people can't see that you can be multifaceted and be hot and smart. Like it feels kind of silly even saying it. Did you see this TikTok? Um, I'm going to play a little bit now. There's way too much emphasis on looks when it comes to building confidence because some of you guys have not read a book in years, don't know how to do your taxes, have no sense of identity outside of the internet and can't speak in public. And yet every morning there you are looking at yourself in your full length Ikea mirror going, you're so hot. You're the prettiest girl in the world. Okay, and 
Even if that were true, and let's be honest, who cares? I also want to mention because uh, for listeners listening to that, she is conventionally pretty as well. It just feels quite one note. And I guess hating on things that typically women enjoy, like looking pretty, maybe doing makeup, taking selfies. It's interesting because I first saw this on Flex Mommy's story and I was like, oh my God, called out. Uh, A lot of my hobbies are to do with the internet. I think later on in the TikTok, she says something like, get a hobby outside media consumption. I'm like, oh my God, that's so me. Right. I've seen some discourse about that on the internet. I've seen some reaction videos to it and I just didn't get it. When I first saw it and she said, who cares? I thought that she was saying like, who cares that you're only hot? I thought she was saying, we don't have to have other hobbies or be conventionally smart to be attractive, but it's the opposite. Um, and I think we've just moved past that in feminism. Let women do what they want to do. If they don't care about hobbies, if they only, if their only hobby is uploading videos of themselves to TikTok, which is also her job, like she's Mm -hmm. a creator. So she's kind of like playing herself. (laughs) Leave women alone. (laughs) God, well said. And honestly, um, when we're talking about thriving in a capitalist system and making money, one of the best ways, and I guess e- not easiest, but one of the ways a woman can become financially successful is becoming, let's say, like a content creator or entering these realms of influencing, which again are very much typically female orientated. And if she's like, don't do it, like read a book or something. Instead, well, it's it's bloody hard, as we know, careers that are like engineering and Hmm, science maybe are like male dominated. So it is hard for women to succeed in like traditional roles like that as well. That those are massive generalizations. So I obviously I'm not questioning the skill set of women. I'm just saying just statistically it's harder to build yourself up in those careers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that went on a tangent that we didn't expect, but we love when that happens. If you've seen that TikTok, maybe we'll post it on our story so you can actually watch it yourself so you know what we're talking about. Let women do what they want to do. Thank you. And in a very lighthearted news story that I think we all kind of needed this week, Billie Eilish changed her hair colour. She went from her very famous black hair with the neon green roots that she's had since 2019 to a bleach blonde hairdo. It basically broke the internet, broke Instagram. It was the record for the fastest to 1 million likes in six minutes. At the time of recording, it has over 20 million likes, which is almost everyone in Australia, which is crazy. Imagine posting a picture of your hair and getting that many likes. I posted a picture when I got a fringe and it was my most liked picture, like, ever. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, people who haven't liked any of my pictures for, like, mm. years, who I didn't even know were following me, was were liking and commenting it. And I think hair really – it's like a new you, new chapter. I'm happy for her. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy for her too. And I don't think it was just her hair that kind of changed as well. So before that record-breaking photo, she posted a little cute video of her flipping back her hair with some kind of 60s music in the background and she was wearing a 60s-style white cardigan as well. Um, so it's very much different to her usual edgy street wear vibe that we usually get from her. It's also very interesting because we, or fans of Billy, kind 
kind of already knew that she was going to change her hairstyle. She announced it back in December in an IG live that she was changing up her hair after her documentary came out. The quote from her is, I'm changing it after the doc comes out. It will be the end of an era. I'm going to give you a new era. The process took about six weeks to complete. So that's why she was wearing a wig and a few people on TikTok already thought that it was a wig there are all these conspiracy theory videos coming out which is really funny i think she looks great it's like a mullet fringe vibe good Mm -hmm. for her what do you think about the timing of it though because we did receive a dm from a listener this picture came out like the day after the atlanta shooting which we'll discuss later you know a lot of people on instagram been talking about anti-asian hate and someone pointed out that like that could have been a good platform for her to speak about those issues Mm -hmm. what do you think about that do you think that Every post needs to be political, not saying that like racism shouldn't be political, but like, do you think everything has to be topical or do you think that Mm. women are allowed to talk about their hair when they want to talk about their hair? I have a lot of mixed reactions to this because a big part of me is I don't think there has been enough support from non-Asian communities, um, especially from larger celebrities. I haven't seen that much. But then, of course, on the flip side, I would never expect anyone to just post about it just to look woke or whatever. Sometimes, mm. to be honest, I saw a few story shares and I just kind of rolled my eyes at fellow like influencers or whoever posted on the story because it just kind of felt ingenuine. It was like one quick slide and then I'll continue my makeup haul. But can I also mention there, my stories definitely look like that during this horrific time as well. I feel like mourning can come in different forms and I don't want everyone to be forced to publicly show their rage or their sadness. How about you? What do you feel about this? I think that she's a teenage girl and she's allowed to, you know, post what she wants when she wants. And I think we have to be careful about policing Instagram activism because Mm -hmm. Instagram isn't the only way that you can like be a good citizen and show your support. But I do understand the thinking of like she has a huge, huge platform to get 20 million likes is like crazy you know but Mm -hmm. I don't know has she posted anything since I think that we can have nuance just in the way that the other day obviously you were posting lots of articles and resources and stuff but then in between that you had like your PR gifts Mm -hmm. that you were given and like yeah you're going out for dinner with friends like we're multifaceted I also think that's when it can become like trendy like a new cycle of Instagram Mm -hmm. resources and I think that's damaging I think she should enjoy her hair and looks good yeah, no, I agree. Um, and we never know what people are doing behind the scenes. Billy herself was very outspoken during um, Black Lives Matter resurgence back in June. So, you know, that's, yeah, I would, I, I don't expect everyone to just post about something. I feel like that diminishes the issue at, at hand. And I like how you mentioned my own um, Instagram as well, because of course, being a member of the Asian community, I have found this week, especially tough and having those moments of like reprieve going out for dinner with friends going out and you know not thinking about this has been helpful and I don't want to be drowned like well honestly if I'm being honest and we'll talk more about this later like yesterday I was drowned in these emotions and like that was not good like that you know like you don't there's not good for people to be in those states all the time Mm. so don't hurt me if I want to just look at Billy's 
new hair and enjoy that, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Before we start this section, we would just like to put a content warning here for addiction and sexual assault. Former Disney star Demi Lovato has created a four-part documentary series titled Dancing with the Devil. So if you're unaware, back in July 2018, just one month after releasing her song Sober, Demi relapsed and overdosed on opioids. After some time out of the spotlight and some more rehab, Demi is now ready to tell her story and her battle with addictions. So this will actually be coming out on YouTube and it will be free and it will be coming out Tuesday the 23rd, which is actually the day that this episode is released. So hopefully we'll have some more details later on. So in the docu-series, it's revealed that Demi only had five to ten minutes to live after her overdose um, and before her assistant found her. She suffered three strokes and a heart attack When she first came back to consciousness, she was declared legally blind and now has blind spots in her vision so she can't drive, which is just awful, awful, awful. The trailer reveals that she was addicted to heroin, the drug dealer sexually assaulted her on the night of her overdose, and that her first sexual experience losing her virginity was to a rape. In her own words, we'll just play a little bit here. I've had a lot of lives, like my cat, you know, I'm on my ninth life. I'm ready to get back to doing what I love, which is making music. I'm not living my life for other people or their headlines or their Twitter comments. The trailer was so full on. It had so many intense themes. And of course, the way it was edited was very dramatic as well. And um, when she was talking about the drug dealer who raped her, I think her quote was, he left me for dead, um, left her literally naked, apparently turning blue as well. Um, it was really disturbing to listen to. And I think one of the biggest revelations from this as well is that, yeah, she lost her virginity to rape. And I think she mentioned that that was when she was 15 years old. And she also said that was someone she knew as a teenager. And also she had to continue to see him. I think in a work sense, I think it kind of alluded to a fellow actor or someone in that realm. God. So I think this series is incredibly brave to be able to share a documentary like that only a couple of years after all of that trauma is so, and to share it with the world. Like mm. Demi was huge on Disney Channel. Like she was part of the club with, she was on Barney with Selena Gomez. Um, she mm-hmm. did movies with Selena. She was obviously Camp Rock with the Jonas Brothers around yeah. the time of Miley Cyrus. Like she was such an icon. She still is in mm-hmm. her own way. And it reminds me a lot of the discussions we've been having recently about Britney Spears and Amanda Bynes and all of those Disney stars where it's real. you realize the pressures they were under, the fact that they didn't get to have a childhood being like that famous at such a young age, like it must screw with your brain. And oftentimes, especially when it comes to drug addictions, we don't hear these stories until after they've died. Like in the case of say Amy Winehouse, obviously not a Disney star, but like she has the documentary Amy and you hear the circumstances and her struggles after the fact. And I think it's really brave that Demi has come out and said all of this now and is being like a face for addiction 
Yeah, to add on to that, I was scrolling through Facebook and I saw that Caroline Flack also has a documentary coming out and seeing so many comments of support on people on Facebook. And I kid you not, all the sentiments were around, how can someone be so mean to someone on the internet? How can someone say these things about someone they don't know? Like, this is truly horrible, et cetera, et cetera. And I saw these maybe a week ago. So at the height of the Meghan Markle interview, and I just was like, that is so pathetic because people are continuing to do this now. And yeah, you're right. People only feel apologetic when someone's dead. That's it. But this isn't Demi's first documentary, right? She's had a few in the past. So she has a lot to say, obviously. Yeah. So she's had one most recently in 2017 called Simply Complicated. And the one before that was in 2012, which was called Stay Strong. And 2012 was like only, God, a couple of years, like one or two years after like her big Disney films and stuff. So that's very interesting. But I think this is very different. It's very raw revealing. I mean, she nearly died. It'll be interesting to hear what else comes out of it. I mean, the trailer's given Mm -hmm. people such an insight into like what happened. I just hope she's okay. And she's like getting the help she needs. It is scary looking in from the outside, looking at these celebrity lives. Like I would never want to trade places with any of these people. It just sounds, it just sounds so scary. And it looks like you have no control over your life. Of course, we've just watched a Britney documentary and there are so many coming out at the moment and it's just really scary. Mm. When I was reading about this, there's a phenomenon called the Disney curse, which you may have heard about. The curse is kind of, it makes it seem like it's only Disney stars, but really it's like the psychological effects of being a child star in general. So you've got like Macaulay Culkin, who was the Home Alone boy. He's like battled with Mm. drug addiction um justin bieber miley miley is disney but you get the gist it's like the psychological effects of being owned at such a young age and i read an article by mara wilson who is the child star from matilda and mrs doubtfire who now speaks out about this kind of stuff and she was saying that she is so grateful that her parents like were there for her and like they controlled a lot of her money and they weren't in it for the wrong reasons. I think a lot of the time parents, like we saw in the Britney documentary, mm. can get wrapped up in the celebrity and the fame and the money, and then they start exploiting their own children, even if their intentions were good in the very beginning. And I don't know if Demi will, like speaks about her parents at all, but you're basically signing away your child's life. Mm-hmm. But then again, if your child was like, begging you like I want to be an actress I want to be a singer like this is my dream I've dreamt of being a pop star and you're like no you know Mm -hmm. it's a hard choice I guess Mm. to like deny your kids that is there any way you can be like a a child star without damaging yourself I think Hilary Duff is like the only person I know that well even she had battles like she had battles Mm. of eating disorders and she dated um Joel from Good Charlotte and he was heaps older than her when she was a teenager. Right. Things like that, which obviously isn't her fault, but she's been through it as well. I don't know. I would say Billie Eilish comes to mind back in this episode. Um, I haven't watched her new documentary, but I've, lo- I've watched a lot of YouTube videos about her and her parents 
are so supportive and you can tell how scared they are of losing her to the industry. And I think it's made her stay really grounded. She still lives in her Mm. parents' home. And it is really great to see that network. I think we have briefly touched on it before, but it's going to be very interesting to see how the lives of TikTok stars and young YouTubers pan out, especially in the case of um, like the D'Amelios and uh, Addison Rae. A lot of their parents are characters in their lives in a way like they have gotten a secondary taste of fame from it and they've, Mm. I don't know, they're part of the limelight, which is an interesting factor to also consider. Yeah, Addison Ray released a single yesterday. Oh, my God, really? Yeah. So she's getting into music. Um, but I saw a video the other day of Charlie D'Amelio, like, on a couch with her parents and her sister, and all of a sudden her hands, like, start shaking, and someone was like, she's having a panic attack. But someone else was like, oh, that's what happens when you vape and you have coffee. Um, but her parents are sitting right there in this interview, and Charlie is 15, 16, and she yeah, starts, like, right. shaking. And it's like, yeah, they're becoming this, like, reality TV show. For sure. Can you protect your children when you're also in the vortex of that industry and you're getting like thousands of dollars per video, you know? So hopefully this can, this documentary will help like a lot of people who are also struggling with addiction. I think it's great that she's sharing her story and we hope that she's getting the help she needs. Well, 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 if it isn't Condé Nast back in the headlines, It has been kind of a thrilling couple of weeks for Teen Vogue, one of their big publications that is known for being progressive and political and is aimed at, of course, judging by the name, a younger demographic. So this month, Teen Vogue had appointed a new editor-in-chief, Alexi McCammon. But after this announcement, a lot of stuff happened. She was called out for her past racist and homophobic comments and tweets after over 20 Teen Vogue staffers circulated a letter condemning her and not wanting her to be the new editor-in-chief. Um, in social media comments, a lot of Teen Vogue's readers also shared the same sentiment. Among the tweets, Alexi said, after returning from a party as a 17-year-old college freshman, she was Googling to find out how to avoid waking up with, quote, Asian eyes. In another tweet, she complained about a, quote, stupid Asian teaching assistant who had only given her a 2 out of 10 on a chemistry quiz. And in another, she complained about being beaten out by an Asian student. So very, like, obviously racist, but also um, it wasn't just one off comment it was like multiple about Asian people it wasn't just a one-off incident actually a few of these tweets spanned over a couple years as well and you know that wasn't that long ago she's 27 years old now which is still young but you know when I was 17 years old I know my friends wouldn't have made those comments you know I think 13 14 also feels a little bit different but just 17 you know I just don't think that that's that young yeah and it's not like a 17-year-old in year 11 in Australia. It's like a 17-year-old freshman, so first year of uni. You should definitely know Mm. when you're being racist in university. This was like quite big news in the media industry and also because it came, Alexi's appointment came after Lindsay Peoples-Wagner, who has moved to the cut. She is a black journalist. She was doing great things for Teen Vogue. She's considered like the reason why it has become the kind of Gen Z 
publication that it is today. So I think a lot of the readers and other journalists in the industry felt duped is because it had gone from being this like very progressive black woman to um, another black woman. We have to say that Alexi is um, BIPOC, but she's been racist to Asian. So, you know, you can't be a leader of a company like that, a publication like that, and not expect a backlash of some sort. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I was having this conversation because I feel like we talk about cancel culture a lot and whether the actions justify the, I guess, accountability that's been taken. So if we look at it, she's posted a few tweets that are racist, but, oh, God, I hate that I'm trying to justify it because in my head I'm like, oh, but they're kind of lighthearted and not the worst, right? And she was, she made a lot of news last year because she was covering, um, the Biden campaign. So she's done a lot of work in the political sphere. She actually mentioned it herself. It was kind of gross. So in her apology, she was like, my past tweets have overshadowed the work I've done to highlight the people and issues that I care about, et cetera, et cetera. That was actually part of her resignation. Sorry. Like that, that's a thing. It's like, can someone's work? negate the bad comments they've made in the past is that the end of her career it's pretty rough hey do you think that people should be punished for saying punished for something they said 10 years later yeah i mean the other thing is her apology that she put out for this this also didn't really feel like an apology she didn't really apologize for this i think she was like i apologize in the past for these comments but didn't really own it so i do think it's less about the apology might be the steps taken afterwards to rectify this and i don't know much i don't know much of the work she's done in terms of asian americans Mm. and stuff like that so I am not one to completely burn bridges and be like, nah, Mm. I'm never going to listen to her again. I just want more than like a dodgy iPhone note apology and stuff. I read a comment from someone that was like when she posted her resignation and Teen Vogue posted their resignation post, someone was like, this isn't enough. I was like, whoa, she's just lost her job. Like she's not going to be this, you know, leader of a magazine anymore but like Mm. should she what I don't know what else do you want her to do also there was some comments about her apology because she said that in her journalism work she tries to be a voice for the voiceless which is a problematic term because it's like we should just Mm -hmm. be giving those they have voices people like minority groups have voices they just haven't been given the space to talk about them so that's kind of an outdated saying but you know I also do feel like my own uncertainty and hesitancy with how this has gone down might be to do with the fact that it is about Asians who have so often become the butt of jokes. If we swapped around her comments, I understand that she is a black woman, but if we swapped it around with black people, you know, like, oh, like my stupid black teacher, blah, 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 that sort of rhetoric, I feel like everyone would be like, yep, she's cancelled immediately, no question, no further questions. Yeah. But I feel like this just makes it, because it's so normalised in our bloody world and, of course, Asians are seen as a model minority who kind of thrive and and some of our stereotypes are that we're smart. So is that really a bad thing? Like people always question that. But no, it's still a stereotype that you're perpetuating that kind of just makes us seem less than a human because we're 
essentially just like a character to you. And and that's an interesting one. Mm. Yeah, you're right. And like, would it also have been different if Alexi was a white woman? Yeah, yeah it would be different. That's but true. like, yeah, I, I just think this is a very interesting kind of point for Teen Vogue and um, Condé Nast as well. And people aren't, people are so aware of these issues nowadays. And if they think you're being performative in any way, like you'll know about it. <laughs> We'll post the apologies on our Instagram so you can read them for yourself if you'd like to. It'll be interesting to see as well who is going to be appointed now. There's going to be a lot of pressure to see who is going to be the new editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue. There are so many great options out there though, so I am glad that it will hopefully go into the hands of someone who can continue Teen Vogue's legacy. The racism story at Teen Vogue had already been happening for a few days when a horrific shooting occurred in America this week. Eight people were tragically murdered as a white man went on a rampage at three spas in Atlanta, Georgia. The shootings took the lives of six women of Asian descent and have caused a lot of trauma and fear in the Asian American community. Yeah. It's been a really hard few days and I especially feel for any Asian American listeners who might be listening at the moment, can't imagine the pain that everyone is going through. It has been the unfortunate climax of how racism has transpired over the past year, actually before this past year, but of course COVID has amplified racism to a wild level. I feel like it's almost every single day we'll see a new elderly Asian person being attacked in the street now, and that is just part of my morning routine. Mm. Um, so it is really devastating to have this happen. And I do want to um, acknowledge every single one of these eight people whose lives were taken. Sung Chung Park was age 74. Hyun Chung Grant, age 51. Sung Cha Kim, age 69. Young Air Yu, aged 63. Delena Ashley Yuan, aged 33. Paul Andre Michels, aged 54. Xiao Jie Tan, aged 49 and Dao Yu Feng, aged 44. Over the past few days as well, we've had more information about these victims and their families, and it has been so heartbreaking, especially Xiao Jie Tan, who was 49. Um, a heartbreaking story came out that her family was gathered um, to celebrate her 50th birthday as this unfolded. And most devastatingly, the family couldn't bring themselves to tell Jiaxia's mum that her daughter was dead. So instead, this is very much, by the way, um, an Asian, like that's very much what's, what happens in Asian culture. This is what um, Jiaxia's daughter Jamie said. She kept asking to talk to my mum. We told my grandma that my mum lost her phone and couldn't answer. It's really, it's really hard to hear these stories. And it does a little bit remind me of the movie The Farewell, which I would recommend to people if they haven't watched. I think we should be centering the victims and their stories and their families rather than the horrific person who did this. It's just white supremacy in action. And. Mm. It's awful and I hope that you're also looking after yourself this week. Thank you. And it has been really 
good to have a community of Asian creatives online who are also feeling similar, I guess, to how I am. So I do want to show some pieces uh, that I resonated with. So one was an IGTV from actress Ashley Park. So she's from Emily in Paris. Um, I'll play a snippet now. Anyway, I came across these words by Min Jin Lee this morning. Um, and I uh, wanted to record them because I was just going to repost it, but I, I, I found that I'm drowning in like all of the reposts and articles and la-da-da-da from like the entire year. And sometimes it just is helpful to see um, a friend or someone I know talk about something because then at least for me, sometimes it feels more real. Um, so Minjin said, in less than 48 hours, we had a historic Asian Oscar moment with multiple firsts in 93 years. Then a mass shooting targeting three Asian-owned businesses. This is how terrorism works. You're not allowed to feel safe, accepted, or valued. We can resist, take up space, and make noise. Another piece I loved was this article by Mahalia Chang for Vogue called We Can't Talk About Anti-Asian Racism Without Talking About Misogyny. So we actually had the pleasure of having Mahalia read out some of her piece in her own words. So thank you, Mahalia. When you learn about racism when you're younger, it all feels like one uniform concept, the action, not the intent. Some homogenous, one-note, almost standardized hatred of all things not white. But what happens when you get older and experience some of that racism for yourself is you realize the depth and multiplicity of it, how varied, how painfully specific, how magnificently tailored it is to you. A close friend of mine once told me, no one can tell whether you're Chinese or Korean quite like someone who's about to call you a slur. As an Asian woman, what happened in Atlanta is what racism looks like for me. Not all of it, of course. There's the microaggressions about accents or how good your English is. There's the particularly lazy flavor of Ching Chong Chinaman eye-pulling chopstick gags you get from teenage boys and drunk men at bars. There's the othering that comes with existing in all white spaces. But perhaps the most ingrained and insidiously normalized symptom of it is the over-sexualization of Asian women. This system has both created this perception of Asian women, sexualized without agency, voiceless yet forever available, exotic but with a price, and punish them for it. Robert Aaron Long's specific targeting of massage parlors feels linked with that question. Asian women aren't, and have never been, safe from discrimination and violence. The very way we are viewed in society sets us up like dominoes to fall. Inevitable, unavoidable, predestined. So I really loved Mahalia's piece and really resonated with it and I am actually writing a piece on my own as well and struggling through it but one thing I do want people to know that but these violent murders don't exist in a vacuum and it isn't just white supremacists that we're worried about it is every asset of our lives that have been, I guess, twisted to fit a Western ideal. It's a way our bodies are used against us. It's a way that people dismiss Asians or minimize us to these stereotypes that we're good at maths or that we wear glasses and that's it. It honestly reduces us to less than a human. 
Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. Angry Maggie. No, thank you for sharing. And thanks, Mahalia, for the words. It is very full on and is mm-hmm. a continuation of the society we have lived in for hundreds of years. It feels like this is a real reckoning for many people and it can feel exhausting Mm. you know having these conversations or calling it out being aware of it but what's the alternative this has Mm. to change and by you writing pieces like the one you are by sharing about it on instagram hopefully people can realize the stereotypes and the microaggressions that happen that is a domino effect to lead to incidences like what happened in georgia Jazz, what have you read, watched, or listened to this week? I feel like over the past few weeks, I've had quite serious recommendations. And so this week, to break up the news cycle, I'm recommending the 13th season of the US RuPaul's Drag Race. Have you seen it? No, I have never seen RuPaul's Drag Race ever, but I do want to get on the bandwagon. I know. Disappointed in myself. So I watched um, a series a few years ago and then just didn't get back around to it but last night I put on the latest American season from the start I watched two episodes and it's just so joyful it's so fun it's such an escape um I'm going to assume that the large majority of our audience (laughs) have either seen it or know of it um if you haven't RuPaul is one of the most commercial and well-known drag queens in America he became a fixture on the New York scene and became internationally known after his song Supermodel You Better Work became a hit. And then in 1994, he became the first drag queen to collaborate with MAC Cosmetics. He got his own talk show and then in 2009 created the competition reality show RuPaul's Drag Race. So basically, he gets a whole bunch of very talented drag queens into a competition and they compete against each other in different categories. So there's like a runway one, there's um, lip syncing challenges, all these different challenges. And then there's like elimination rounds and stuff. And then the last drag queen standing will receive a hundred thousand dollars and um, unlimited supply of Anastasia, uh, Anastasia. I don't know. I'm not into makeup at all. Anastasia Beverly Hills products. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I just really enjoyed it. RuPaul can sometimes be seen as slightly controversial. He's been called out for transphobic comments in the past and as well as leasing some of his ranch out to oil and fracking companies, which people have called out a lot. But at the end of the day, it's a reality TV show. There's some drama, there's some infighting, but it's just super fun, lighthearted. It's just so joyful to watch people like following their passions and doing something they're really good at. Like the, the skills you have to have to be a drag queen. Oh my God. Like the performance and everything. So if you're looking for like an escape, that is on Stan Australia and I would recommend it. Fun. Okay. I really need to watch it. And there's an Australian one coming as well, which is quite exciting. I might watch that one as well. So hopefully that's good. Um, but thank you for that recommendation. Mags, what do you recommend this week? So I've got a heavy recommendation for us this week. Um, I do want to have a trigger warning. Uh, the podcast episode I'm about to recommend and what I'm about to talk about will have themes of sexual abuse, eating disorders, self-harm and suicide. 
So I'm recommending Shameless Podcasts in conversation episode with Grace Tame. So Grace Tame, for those who don't know, is this year's Australian of the Year. So when Grace was just 15 years old, she was repeatedly groomed and raped by a 58-year-old maths teacher at her school. So she spearheaded the Let Her Speak campaign with journalist and activist Nina Funnel, which sought to overturn the gag laws in Tasmania, the Northern Territory, and Victoria. So I had definitely heard of the work that Grace had done, but I didn't know her story in this much detail, and it was really powerful to listen to. It's obviously a very, I guess, depressing and barbaric story, though she is an immensely strong woman. But I would definitely recommend and encourage people listen to this episode if you are in the right headspace for it. Of course, as you can imagine, it is a very heavy episode, but she is just such a powerful woman that I very much look up to. And I think it was a great episode on Shameless. Yeah, I really need to listen to that. I think Grace Tame is such an incredible person and is doing amazing things for the survivors of sexual assault and abuse. So we'd be really interested in listening to that one. Thanks for recommending it. Well, thank you so much again for listening to this entire episode. I know that it was a pretty heavy one. So I hope that you, our listeners, do take care of yourself, make space for yourself and just take it slow and do what you need to care for your mental health. Otherwise, we'll be back in your ears next week. So have a good week, everyone. Bye.